I heard an old, old story about a Savior who came from glory, how he gave his life on Calvary to save a wretch like me. I heard about his groaning, of his precious blood's atoning, and I repented of my sins and won the victory. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved me ere I knew him, and all my love is doing. He plunged me to victory beneath his cleansing blood. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Brethren and friends, we are talking about triumph. We are talking about victory. Victory that is impossible without the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. We are being reminded of what we have and the benefits that we have only because of Jesus. This morning we are going to talk about propitiation. Before we do, I want to remind us of where we have been. I want to encourage you, if you've not done so, can you find an empty page at the back of your copy of God's Word, or can you write on a page that you might be able to reference in the future, can you find somewhere to write down these terms that we have been reminded of, somewhere where you can reference back in the future as you study or as you need to be uh, reminded and get a pick-me-up, will you just think about these words and write them down if you've not done so? How about 1 Corinthians 6, number 11, verse 11, where we read first about being washed. And you remember in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul is writing to Christians, uh, and he gives a laundry list of those who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says in verse number 11, those, those that were unrighteous that will not inherit the kingdom of God, such were... Some of you, but you were washed. You were made fully clean. You were completely cleansed from your unrighteousness. You were unrighteous. You were lost. You were not going to go to heaven, but something changed. What changed? You were washed. You saw the benefit of being washed for yourself, and you were washed. Same word is found in Acts 22 and verse 16, where... Saul was asked by Ananias, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sin, calling on the name of the Lord. To be washed is to be baptized. It is there that we meet the benefits of the cross. It is there that we meet the precious blood of the Lamb that was shed for the sins of the world. It is there that our sins are forgiven in baptism. That night, uh, that Sunday, we looked at the word sanctified in the evening. Remember in that same context... What happened? What changed, Paul, from going to being lost as part of the unrighteous who were not going to inherit the kingdom of God? What changed? Well, you were washed, 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You were sanctified. That's interesting because the washing is something you, you chose to do. And in being washed, God forgave your sins. But something that you don't have in your control is to be sanctified. God does that. God is the one who sets you apart. He is the one who separates you now from being unrighteous to being righteous. Now from being one who is lost to being saved. He is the one who sets you apart. Now in his eyes, 
You are holy. How does that happen to a sinner? That happens only because of the blood of Jesus. Last Sunday morning, you remember, we looked at the word justified. And we looked again, that's the third phrase that we find in that one verse of 1 Corinthians 6, 11. You were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified. You were declared by God as a sinner, not guilty. The formal acquittal of guilt by God. And so that doesn't mean that you are innocent of the crime. It doesn't mean that you have never sinned. It simply means that now, because of being washed in the blood of Jesus, God is able to say, I'm not going to hold that against you. Triumph terms. This is what we enjoy in Christ. This is what happens when we meet the blood of Jesus and the benefits of the cross. Last Sunday evening, we left 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 11 because we exhausted those three terms that are there. And we look together at the word elected. I remember looking at this word, and again, we said there are other words that are very closely connected to the idea of being elected by God, the idea of being chosen, the idea of being adopted, the same idea behind the word predestined or predestination. It is not as if God from the beginning of time uh, elected or chose those who are going to be saved and said, you have nothing to do with this, You're just going to be saved whether you want to be saved. And sorry, you're going to be lost whether you want to be lost. But there's nothing you can do about it. Nothing could be further from the truth. Friends, what we're saying, what the Bible has to say is that God from the beginning had a plan to bring about the salvation of mankind. And to those who will choose to obey Him, He chooses to save. Those who elect to serve Him, obey Him, do what He says to be saved, those He elects to be saved. They're found in His church where the saved are. Acts 2, verse 47. And so again, it's not a a complicated term, but the elected are those who are picked out, those who are chosen. They're part of the ecclesia, the church, the called out ones. And so if we will choose to obey God, God will choose to save us. But none of this is possible without the cross. And so I hope that you'll find these terms to be beneficial Again, on down days when you're wondering as a Christian, boy, do I need to continue? What's the point in all of this? I'll remind you the point. Jesus died so that you can go to heaven. You're triumphant if you remain faithful to Him. God loves you. He loves me. He has given us His Word, all that we need to know in order to be with Him. And the blood of Jesus is powerful, more powerful than anything else there is. This morning we get to the term propitiation. I've heard it used twice already in the services this morning, and that's twice more than I've heard it maybe in the last six months. It's not a word that we use very often, is it? It's not a word that just easily rolls off the tongue, is it? It's a difficult word, but what in the world are we talking about when we use the word propitiation? You're going to find it in your copy of God's Word. It's Brother Kyle read for us in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. We're going to back up to chapter 2 in just a moment. You'll find it over in Romans chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 2. You'll find a word akin to it in Hebrews chapter 4, though it's not going to be propitiation, but it's connected to the mercy seat. But what we're, what we're dealing with uh, by way of defining this particular word is satisfying God's wrath through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, the perfect atoning or covering sacrifice. The satisfaction of God's wrath through the perfect atoning sacrifice of Jesus. Now, that sounds all good and well, but 
can we talk about it just a little bit deeper? Can we break down a couple of other terms and try to wrap our minds around exactly what it is that we're dealing with as we talk about propitiation? You mentioned there, Adam, that, that God is full of wrath, that, that there's somehow uh, God is against people and displaying wrath. And Jesus had to come and satisfy wrath? Well, that's not the God I'm familiar with. Uh, you know, that might be the God of the Old Testament, but I'm not so sure that that's still God today. If you were to have a poll of your closest friends and loved ones, especially you who might be just a touch younger than some others, there will be a poll that says, no, I don't think hell is real. And I think it would surprise an older generation to know how many have come to believe that as well. That hell really isn't a, it's not an actual place. That God is too loving to send anyone there for eternity. And so that place just really can't exist. And so as we're dealing with this idea of propitiation, maybe we would do well to step, take a step back and look at wrath. I don't enjoy doing this. You won't enjoy hearing it. But that doesn't make, any, make it any less true. All right, the Bible has a lot to say about it. Now let's just go back in the Old Testament for a minute. This is one word of several that we could look at. But for our illustrating purposes, let's just pick out one. The word haram. And I want you to see that it is found 40 times in the New Testament. Or in the Old Testament, rather. And when this word is found, it always is connected to God. Now, as you read through your Old Testament, you're going to find a, a variety of words that are connected and a variety of ways that this particular Hebrew word is translated. Now, as you work your way down that list, and I tell you that all of those words are connected to God, do you starting to get a picture? Are you starting to see what God is capable of? Fury, fierce anger, burning anger, wrath, the idea of being hot or ablaze, the idea of wielding a sword. These are all connected to God. And we have barely begun to scratch the surface. Let me give you an idea of where this is found. We're not going to exhaust this much, but I want you to see it. In Jeremiah chapter 4, we find it in, in this context. You're reminded in Jeremiah that God has sent this great prophet of God, a prophet of His, to go to His people, the southern kingdom of Judah. And what He is doing is trying to remind them to get out of their sin, remind them of all that God has done and the fact that they need to repent and get out of their sin. And so this great man of God goes to God's people. And this is part of his message. In chapter 4, verse number 3, Thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up your fallow ground and do not sow among thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings or your deeds, other translations. Does that verse mention that God is furious? Yes. But what is He furious with? What is causing Him to be furious? It's sin, isn't it? Your evil deeds are raising my fury. Now, you continue reading. Verse 5 says, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, 
Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, Assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge, do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitants. For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail. For the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. We mentioned in our study in this auditorium this morning, looking at 2 Chronicles... We looked at the love and compassion of God in sending the prophets. The compassion of God is seen in the fact that Jeremiah is even saying this. The love of God is com- for His people is completely on display because the prophet is being sent at all. Why is Jeremiah there? He's trying to get the people to wake up, isn't he? I need you to repent. I need you to turn away. Come back to God, the God who loves you, who's done everything for you. But if you don't, he will be against you because of your sin. He'll be furious, and he is, because of your choice. Friends, we simply need to be reminded that this is a real thing. That God is furious with evil deeds. He is furious with sin. He is furious because He is everything that is good. And when you turn away from Him, the one who has provided everything you need in this life, He's furious. Is it righteous? You bet it is. Is it called for? Absolutely. And it's right. It's who he is. Now, let's go to the New Testament. And we'll pick out one New Testament word. Maybe. There it is. The word is orge. And it is found 36 times in the New Testament. And most often it is translated simply with the words wrath or anger. One of the first times that you will find it in your New Testament is in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. To many, this will be a very familiar context, and yet it is eye-opening, isn't it? The Bible says in Mark chapter 3, verse 1, He entered, that is, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a withered hand. So they watched Him closely. The they is, verse number 6, the Pharisees. They watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And he said to them, I'm emphasizing for a reason, Jesus says to them, not him, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they, the Pharisees, kept silent. And when he looked around at them with anger, there's your word, orge, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Did Jesus get angry? The Bible says he did. Was he furious? Yes, the Bible says he was. At what? Hard hearts. Was it righteous anger? In other words, was he right to be angry, full of fury? And the answer is yes. At hard hearts, evil deeds make God angry. Hard hearts make God angry. Now, you turn in your Bible a little bit further and you get to Romans. 
and you look in Romans in the first chapter, and you're reminded of the words of Paul as he is writing to Christians in the city of Rome. And he says to these Christians in verse 18 of chapter 1, For the wrath of God, orge, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all, what? Ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Does the Bible say that God is furious? Yes. It couldn't be more clear. The, answer, the question that we have to ask, though, is what makes Him angry? I know what makes me angry. I know that I can at times have a short temper with my brethren and with friends and with my family and things don't go just my way and I can get angry. It's not the way. That's not the way this word is used at all to describe God. What we're talking about is righteous anger. And God is right to be angry. At what? Ungodliness. Unrighteousness. Those who will take the truth and hide it or suppress it from other people getting it. That's what makes God angry. That's what causes fury. Sin. You continue through Romans and you get to chapter 2 and you get to verse number 1. I just want you to read it with me. See what it says about God, brethren and friends, please. Therefore, Paul says, you are inexcusable. Oh man, you're without excuse. Whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another, you practice yourself. You condemn yourself, for you're practicing the same things. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O oh man, you who judge those practicing the such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So that's kind of foolish, isn't it? Do you despise, verse 4, the riches of His goodness forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you're treasuring up for yourself wrath. That's our word, wrath, in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality, but to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and what? Wrath. Does the Bible talk about the wrath of God? Well, it's kind of hard to get around, isn't it? I mean, if you're being honest with yourself, the Bible's very clear that God gets angry, that God is furious with what? Sin. That's where he gets furious, with sin. He has from the start. But don't you miss, number four, in our, in our context and as we think about fury and we think about God being furious and angry and full of wrath, all of that is, is absolutely the truth. But so is verse number four, isn't it? We serve a God who is rich in goodness, forbearance, and patience, long-suffering. He is rich in those things as well. He is rich in goodness. How do you balance the two? Where is the balance found? Well, that's what we're seeking to find. But I want to go one more place before we leave this particular uh, thought. And that is over to chapter 5. And I want you to look there with me beginning in verse 6. Now these words I hope will be somewhat familiar. But pay attention please to what we're dealing with. Paul says, for when we were still without strength, when we were weak, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now if all you get is one side of the coin. The picture is bleak. I can't escape the wrath of God. Why? Because of my sin? Because He hates unrighteousness and is furious with it? I've had a hard heart. I have sinned. I've gone against Him. And so what am I going to do? How do I escape wrath? How do I escape the fury of God? Through Him. Verse 9. I escape the wrath through Him. It is Jesus who came to satisfy the wrath of God. Brethren and friends, we need to understand the triumph that is found in the word propitiation. The wrath of God is real and will be revealed in the last day. God will have His vengeance, God will take out His fury, and He will sentence people to eternity in hell. It's real, and it's going to happen, and all of us are deserving of it. But Jesus came and offers propitiation. The ability to satisfy the wrath of God against me. Jesus came. And through him we have it. Now go over to the book of 1 John. And we will spend the remaining time that we have mostly looking here. And will not take a long time. But I want you to see the beautiful picture of God in 1 John. I'll just remind you of some wonderful truths. I'm not saying you don't know this, but I'll remind you. And I want you to see as we get into 1 John and and you begin going through it, that what you're going to see in verse 5 is a beautiful picture of God. God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. He is truth. He is purity. He is full of goodness. He is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And then you drop down to verse 6, and John says that if we say that we have fellowship with Him, with God who is light, and walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. Now, he introduces us to this idea of walking. And it's in verse number 6 where he says, You can't claim to have fellowship with God who is light and walk or live your life in darkness. You can't live your life in sin and think that you can be in fellowship with God. Sorry, don't kid yourself. It's not going to work. Let me get to verse number 7. And the means of being in fellowship with God. The means of being able to walk in the light. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from sin. And so we are able to be in fellowship with God and with God's people only because Jesus sacrificed Himself, right? Because it is the blood of Jesus that unites us, allows us to be in fellowship as we strive to live in the light. Live according to God. 
blood of Jesus is the means of doing this. Now, what happens when I sin after meeting the blood of Jesus in baptism? What happens after I, after I fail becoming, after becoming a Christian? And so Paul, John writing here says, you know what, I'll, I'll tell you this. These are the, this is the means of getting into fellowship. This is the means by which we walk in the light. And these are the conditions that you as Christians must continue to meet in order to remain right with God. Verses 8 and 9. And so you see in your, your Bible it says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Time out. On the one hand, fury, anger. God is against sin. In Him is light and there is no darkness at all. And yet, I can be in fellowship with Him. And look at how wonderful it is that I can remain in fellowship with Him. And the only answer is because of the blood of Jesus. But John... Answer me this. Why are you writing this? Why, why did you write this down for me? Why do I need to know that God is light and in Him is no darkness? That I need to live in such a way that I'm not practicing uh, unrighteousness, but practicing righteousness? Why are you telling me about the blood of Jesus that continues to cleanse me from my sin? That I need to continue to confess and forsake sin? Why are you writing this? Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. Stop. Why are you writing this, John? I'm writing this because I want you to see how terrible sin is. I'm writing this because I want you to understand what sin does I want you to know that if you continue in sin, you're going to be out of fellowship with God. And if you die out of fellowship with God, you're lost. And I want you to know, even as a Christian, how terrible and horrible sin is. I want you to get as far away from that as you possibly can. That's why I'm writing this. I'm sorry. John, I try so hard, but I still sin. What do you have for me now? Let me tell you what I've got. I continue, and the Bible says, And if, since anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. I know that you will try as hard as you can to not sin. I want you to know how horrible sin is and the consequences of living in it. But I also want you to know that as you strive to walk in the light... You remain in fellowship with God. His, the blood of Jesus continues to cleanse you from your sin. And when you sin, you have an advocate with the Father. A lawyer. An attorney. 
standing before the throne of God, pleading your case to the Father. Don't miss this. What does John call Jesus in verse 1? Jesus Christ, the righteous. In the original, there is no definite article. It's just Jesus Christ, righteous. And the righteous is advocating, pleading the case for the unrighteous. You see what he's doing? He's saying, I know that you're lost. I know that you've sinned. But I've done everything I can do. I'm doing everything I can do to get you home. He is the propitiation. He is the one who satisfies the wrath of God by covering our sin. What a beautiful picture it is to think about the fury of God and how against sin He is. Don't kid yourself, He is. And yet Jesus is able to, with His blood, cover me, as it were, make atonement for me to satisfy the wrath of God. He saves me from that wrath. He saves me from that fury and allows me to be in fellowship with God. Brethren and friends, this is a word of victory. This is a word that describes for us exactly what Jesus has done. And so what does walking in the light require? It requires that I be in fellowship with God and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Because I cannot be in darkness and in fellowship with God. So walking in the light, uh, taking advantage of that propitiation, taking advantage of the sacrifice of Jesus, it requires that I walk in the light. You claim to walk in the light, but really walk in darkness? You lie, and you don't practice the truth. We want to stay in the light where the benefits of the cross are continually found. What does walking in the light require? It requires accepting Jesus and the propitiation provided through His blood. It requires that I accept Jesus and the propitiation that His blood gives me. Because unless I am able to see that Jesus appeases or satisfies the wrath of God, I will not walk in the light. Unless I see the benefit of what Jesus provides... I will remain outside. So the question is, where do you find yourself? And have you taken advantage of the propitiation, the one who satisfies the wrath of God? Will you please go over a page in your Bible to chapter 4 and read again the words that Brother Kyle read for us now several minutes ago in verse number 10. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This gift that Jesus gives is an expression of the vastness of the love of God. Is God angry with the wicked? Every day. Psalm 711. Every day He's against the wicked. But He allows me to be with Him. Friends... Verse 10 of 1 John 4 says, His expression of love was not because I loved Him first. It was not His response to my love. It's just simply the fact that Jesus has always loved me. 
that God has always loved me and He's always loved you and therefore provided a way for you and I to go to heaven. He loved me ere I knew Him. He loved me before I knew Him. And all my love is due Him. Have you been plunged to victory? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Is the wrath of God satisfied with you? This morning, if you've not responded, won't you? Won't you do what He says you must in order to take advantage of His blood? Won't you come to Him in faith, repentance, and baptism, having your sins washed away? Arising triumphant. If you as a Christian have wandered back into darkness, you have an opportunity to come home today, won't you? If we can help you in any way, come now, please, while together we stand.